continue, continue, continue. Close your eyes and continue. It's like you're going around a track or you are walking into a mountain and you have an objective, reach that point and you are tired, continue, never stop. As an entrepreneur, one is unemployable, maybe doesn't have any more, any money. Those are motivations to make them want to continue. Welcome to Secret Leaders. Today, I'm with Simon Beckerman, the founder of Depop, and now the founder and CEO of Delhi. Simon founded Depop in 2011, a popular social commerce app for peer-to-peer resale of clothes and accessories. Depop gained immense popularity among Gen Z consumers, offering a curated platform that combines elements of Instagram and eBay. Fast forward 10 years and Simon sold Depop for $1.6 billion to another huge player in the game, Etsy. Now, he's a CEO and founder of Delhi, an online marketplace supporting locally sourced food and drinks. So, Simon, welcome to Secret Leaders. Thank you for having me. Mate, I'm very excited to have you. Um, I've been a big fan of Depop for a long time. I think the right place to start is understanding a little bit about the Depop story. For anyone that's living under a rock or not a Gen Z or not into fashion or just doesn't understand apps, you know, let's say that this is for my mum. Tell me what Depop is. So Depop is a mobile social marketplace for people who want to buy and sell mostly vintage and unique clothing. It's um, gained traction amongst the younger audience, if I may say so. In a sort of way, it contributed in making vintage, buying and selling vintage uh, fashionable, pun intended. Yeah, got it. Okay, so let's get into the nuts and bolts. Like, why did you want to create Depop? What was the urge? So I was at the time in Italy. I was born and raised in Italy. So uh, despite my English name. Oh man, a um, good good Italian name of Simon Beckerman. They must have uh, really <laughs> expected that. Yes. My, my dad is British. He was born and raised in London and my mum is Italian. They met in London before I was born and went to live in Italy. So I was born and raised there and I've studied in the creative fields all my life. So art, industrial design at university, as many founders do, I dropped out university because I needed to work. I don't know whether that is a lucky thing or not, but in my case it was. And so I start before Delhi, uh, before Depop, I co-founded with my brother a creative agency in the late 90s in Milan. We would do brand design that were amongst the first internet websites in Italy and creative things for companies in general. Then we co-founded together a fashion and music magazine called People in Groove. That one uh, went on until more or less 2012. Uh, During that uh, period, we also co-founded a sunglasses brand called Retro Super Future. That brand is still going on as today. My brother is running it from Milan. The magazine, music and fashion magazine, was aimed at discovering all the new up-and-coming and most interesting talents in these fields and bringing them to the to the people in Italy. So Depop was uh, born out of, let's say, 10 years doing a website, uh, doing the magazine and doing the sunglasses, uh, learning how to build communities, how to build, in a sort of way, brands. And the idea came because we wanted to build, initially, an app where uh, the people who read our magazine could discover and buy the very unique and super inspiring fashion pieces that we would feature in the magazine. As I was designing it, um, basically, I don't know exactly what made it happen, but I describe it as a, a brick that fell in my head. At a certain point, I realized that we could open it up, make it a marketplace and allow all these young or new generation people uh, use that to sell their own items too. So not just us listing uh, stuff that we would feature in our magazine. So that that's how the Depop idea uh, came to be. I was basically drawing this app, which was supposed to be like more of an e-commerce on my desk in Milan. And it was late night in, I think it was 1 a.m. And when the idea came, as I was drawing, 
I remember picking up my phone and calling my soon-to-be wife and then my mum too and telling them about this idea. I was like, hey, I've got this incredible idea. I think this is going to be big. I want to do it. I had this, as I said, brick that fell in, uh, on my head. And uh, yeah, so then I basically decided to do it. Uh, I agreed with my brother that he would take on the magazine and the sunglasses. I would focus on the app. So I found this incubator in Italy who was investing at the time in the first apps coming out of the country. It was the equivalent of, let's say, Y Combinator, but in Italy. It's called HFARM. So I went there, I presented the app, they liked it, and I already had a little bit of a career behind uh, behind me because of the magazine and the sunglasses. So they trusted my ability in building the community and the, the marketing strategy and all the tactics that I had in mind in order to launch it. That's it. I built the first app in this campus, which is near Venice. Then in... This was between end of 2011 and uh, end of uh, end of the summer of 2012, and then I moved uh, to London and uh, built the team in London, which from four people uh, ended up being, I think, at the moment of the exit, it was 450 people or something like that. And the accelerator that you joined in the first place, they got equity. They had equity, yes. So, so they also they're very happy, yes. <laughs> Good. And I've got to ask, what's your brother's name? Daniel. So how did the equity split work? And obviously I'm asking, I'm not trying to get your brother to, uh, you know, (laughs) not love his own brother anymore. But I've heard of these things happening a million times over. You go work on this and I'll go work on that. And, you know, if the thing that really takes off is the thing that the other person doesn't have the equity in, but they were left holding the baby, that can be very difficult. Doesn't sound like that's what's happened, but tell us. Well, we split the companies, not the equity. So basically, when I decided to move on to the app, we agreed that I would sell basically my equity to my brother of the other two companies, and he would uh, continue running those. Uh, The magazine went on for, I think, another year. So I left in 2011, and the magazine continued to until 2012. But the sunglasses business was going so well that my brother decided at that point to just focus on the sunglasses business, which is still going well as of today. We do share uh, an investor, but we don't. We didn't share equity in the in Depop. So what we're gathering from this is you, you definitely chose well. In maybe, but if we think about it money-wise, uh, for today, yes. I hope my brother. Uh, can do an exit too soon. His company is on the path to becoming very successful. Uh, But I would say, given the difficulties, as you might have alluded in working with family, I would say one of the prizes that we both won was a little bit more of freedom. Uh, When Mm. you work with family, the roles are never well delineated. So there's a lot of arguments and it's challenging. So I think that freed us all from being able to run our companies and in the best way we we think, we thought was, I managed to make Depop a success. He is managing to make the sunglasses company a success. So yeah, it's a win-win in a sort of way. Yeah, I think that makes sense actually, right? Like the biggest chance that you had was to separate, not to stay together and actually... I mean, I don't know. I don't remember the stats, but a majority of reason, I think it's like the number one reason companies fail is the founders. Uh, The founders just fall out or something happens with them. They just can't get on. And like you said, well, you didn't actually say this specifically, but when it's a family, you're never just partners. There's always the history. There's always the unsaid stuff. There's the argument that happened 15 years ago around the dinner table that's kind of lodged there somewhere with resentment subconsciously. You're not even aware of it. Yeah. So I think, yeah, better better that you guys are able to focus on your own parts. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, what I didn't say is that the phase where my brother and I were separating was really, really difficult. It was quite painful. That's when I started also seeing a therapist because uh, separation is always difficult. And when you separate from your family, from a family business, I think it's one of the most difficult separations ever. So there was a lot of resentment between the two. We started to bring up stuff 
that happened when we were kids, you know, parents, he was, I'm the bigger brother, he's the smaller. It's, it's, it's not nice. So for a few years, we had difficulty in talking to each other. Now everything has gone back to nearly normal. So, or what, what is considered to be a good normal, but it was a difficult moment. Yeah. Yeah. I think relationships are so, so difficult. They require work on both sides and then business relationships are complicated enough without (laughs) throwing in the family dynamic too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I now say to anyone, do not do any business with your family. I mean, what about with your wife? So my wife, what about with your partner? What do you, do you feel like that's different because you're starting a new life together versus you've grown up in an old system together? Do you think there's a difference or do you maintain that advice to others? Uh, I do maintain that advice, but also for another reason, which is that in my previous company, when I was doing it with my brother and my uh, parents, because my parents were working in the company too, my dad was selling the advertising for the magazine and my mom was keeping all the finances. Uh, So it was a fully fledged family business. And I also, at that point, brought in my previous uh, partner and she was part of the team. She did great. Her contribution to the magazine and the sunglasses was really incredible. She was running parts of the community and she brought in all the celebrities and the influencers. Uh, so she did a really good job, but it was at the same time, very, very difficult to a point that when I, then we separated for other reasons, but then I met this uh, woman who became my wife just before I started Depop. So she, we met when I was still at the end of the magazine period. And I made it a point to myself that I would not involve her officially in my businesses, and I would be careful every day coming back from home to talk about, make it too stressful uh, for her to cope with the dynamics of running a startup, especially after I learned how complicated it is to run a company with with a VC kind of system, uh, which requires moving very fast, very big ambitions, and a lot of nights up. <laughs> and this was your first time, right? This was your first time raising money from uh, VCs. So I guess, you know, a different kind of journey with Depop. Yes. So when I met these people in Venice, they were not really VCs. They were incubators. So they just invested uh, a little bit of money, sort of like Y Combinator does. And then they had me there in their campus, building the app, teaching me how to do apps which was very nice. It was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had, if I may say so. And during that phase, every day we would have potential investors coming in, we would pitch to them. And at a certain point, when we were ready to go for the next round, someone from Balderton Capital, which is a very big VC firm in London, they are the ones behind Revolut, for example. And he came to H, uh, H Farm to visit and see some startups, and he is Italian. So we immediately had a connection, and I pitched the app to him, and he decided to bring it to his group who decides who invests, and the partners, basically. And uh, they decided to, to invest a seed round in Depop. And at that point, I decided to move to London when uh, they invested. Uh, this was my first time. When I started Depop, I didn't even know what a VC was. <laughs> so it was, comp- oh, everything was completely new. I didn't even know what a backend was. Uh, mm. So, yeah. And you were busy designing, right? You got that Italian flair. So you were busy <laughs> designing the app and keeping the the look and feel, the front end, as we would call it, obviously, in the tech world. Uh, that was your remit, right? Yes. So what I did was I studied as much as I could uh, UX design because coming from an industrial design background, I thought that could be the part where I could do best. Although I I had experience in building brands and community, but that would be my main role. So I decided to make sure I would design the best app I could. And at the same time, HFARM would help me out in taking care of all the finances and teaching me how to fundraise. We had some partners in H Farm who helped helped me to do the all the decks 
and these kind of things. And so when it came to pitch, I was more or less ready. Got it. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. With the Depop journey in general, you know, you, you ended up selling for 1.6 billion. However, sure, it wasn't a straight journey up and to the right the entire time. So talk to me a little bit about the, the, the clear challenges. What were some of those moments where it just didn't necessarily feel like it was all going to work out? Well, uh, some, some people call these near-death experiences in startups. Now, we can read about it a little bit in Ben Horowitz's book, which I mention very often, because Mm. I think that book reflects... That's the hard thing about hard things for listeners. Yes. And I think there are multiple of these. So initially, I would say, if you're a first-time founder, you don't know many of the dynamics of how to build a company. Nowadays, probably you can have a lot of help by reading online. And there's also ChatGPT now who can help you out, which I think is very useful. But at the time, there was not many resources. That was 2011 uh, on how to build an app or even how to build a startup. I remember when I decided to come to London, it was still a battle between which one was going to be the, the city in Europe that would have the crown for the place to go and build your startup between London and Berlin. And so challenges are a lot. I would say, first of all, building an app that works is a big challenge, Uh, especially in Italy in 2011, finding developers who are experts in doing mobile, that was impossible. Mobile has some different kind of skills, for example, in UX design. And again, sorry if I continue to say it, but especially at the time, Internet connections were slower and people had less data available for them every month. So we needed to, so developers and designers had to figure out uh, ways to build interfaces that loaded up in a more optimal way. And so those kind of things were really difficult to find in Italy. But I guess in Europe in general, as of today, it is very difficult to find UX designers, which are really good in the UK uh, too. So that is a big challenge. Another big challenge would be as you move along, you go through this phase where you need to find what you call product market fit. But then how do you define product market fit and how do you know when you reach that? Now you would say, for example, uh, certain kind of metrics, certain kind of KPIs would be the ones that you choose in order to define what that means. And then you measure the traction of those 
in, in time and you see whether you're moving towards that. And then when you're close to that, maybe you want to go fundraising and you have those numbers and the investors can see that. But at the time, you know nothing of the, these kind of things. You don't exactly know what, what you're doing, what the audience is going to be, especially with Depop. Depop was an app where people could buy and sell from their pocket, which it was a first. Uh, when I started Depop, you couldn't even list for sale on eBay in, uh, on the app. You could only do it on the web. At the same time, you're trying to crack a new market, which is the market for used fashion. Uh, you, vintage now is a cool thing, but at the time, to buy vintage, you would you would have to go into a vintage shop somewhere and rummage in baskets full of smelly clothes. The experience wasn't the best. And so how to explain to an audience, to the world, that people in the future <laughs> would want to buy and sell vintage clothes from their wardrobes and from their pocket in an app when apps weren't even a thing at the time. Now, Instagram, when I started Depop, Instagram had 10 million users, which was the, the biggest app probably ever. So that was a, a big challenge. Uh, another personal challenge was me moving to the UK. I decided to move to the UK on my own to do this thing. I didn't, I didn't give myself a big salary. So I was living in a studio apartment in, in, uh, in Spitterfields near Shoreditch. My uh, girlfriend still lived in Italy and she, we used to meet once every two weeks or once every week if we were lucky. And I remember every she would come on a Friday and on a Monday morning, we would go out of the house on our um, together and we would split. She would go to the airport to go to Milan. I would go to the office and imagine someone going to the office on their own with no money. Obviously, we were backed by VCs, but at the same time, we didn't have a lot of money in the initial phase. Uh, I think we raised something like 500k and in the second round, you didn't know whether it was going to be successful. And it was very, very difficult. I remember crying many times on Monday mornings and calling, even calling my mom. And I'm, I'm saying calling your mom at, when you're 40, <laughs> crying because you don't know what, what you're doing and whether what you're doing is going to be successful. And also, usually, as you might know, founders are people who are Mark and Dressen said this, unemployable. Uh, that's why yeah. maybe they end up being founders because they know that they wouldn't be able to work in a company. And so basically, I think that, that makes also part of the drive in building a company, which is that if you're not going to make it, you're going to be under a bridge. So it's either you do it or, you, or you're, I don't know, <laughs> there's no alternative. So that's probably the biggest challenge. The coping with this, uh, uncertainty uh, for many, many years and not knowing whether you're going to make it or not. And how do you deal with the uncertainty? Does it become part of your identity? Do you sort of brush it off when everything has gone well in the past? Uh, as in, you're through the exit, you get to reflect. Did you have like a bunch of pent up emotion that started just like express itself and release like some weird behaviors you just didn't even know you had in you because you're basically carrying all this sort of like pent up trauma or you know can you explain anything that you experienced yeah sure well the exit was lasted like nine months or something like that i think the first contacts with etsy were in the summer of 2020 it lasted for nine months and these were nine months quite stressful nine months obviously because you've got someone interested in buying your company and you always have this thing in your head, which is, let's say, statistically, out of 10 startups, I think Jason Calacanis said this in his book, Angel, seven companies fail, one makes the money back, another one returns the money for the seven who failed, and there's only one left which succeeds, and we don't know how much of a success that one is, which is already difficult per se but then if you think all the other seven or eight founders who are left they worked really really hard for many many years going through all of these uncertainties and trying to be successful and then they end up not being as lucky as I was doing an exit so I guess this might be very traumatic in already so when I was going through these nine months I was thinking 
let's hope that this turns out and works out because all these years, uh, you know, it's been so difficult, so stressful, and it would be really nice <laughs> if it could end the, uh, like this. So these nine months were, the, the first phase were conversations with the board, whether we want to go through this or not. What were you planning for the business otherwise? Yeah, we were already hiring for potential IPO maybe, because the right. uh, I think we sold when we were nine or 10 years in with the company. And so we were more or less reaching the end of the road for a VC, no? Uh, or the first ones at least. And so the two options were exit or IPO. And so we started having these conversations with the board and then we decided to move on and see where would where this would take us. We started working with Credit Suisse for right investment banker. Investment banker, yeah, they came in and they did due diligence, and the idea was that they would give us a rough ballpark of what we could achieve, whether we would exit or IPO. And the amount that came out was already quite substantial, um, more than uh, unicorn. So at that point we said, okay, let's let's continue. And so we we went to Etsy and we told them we are happy if you want to make us an offer. And so uh, they made us an offer. We decided to start negotiating around that offer. It was very very tough. And keep in mind, all of this lasted for nine months. We negotiated. Uh, twice, I think we did a couple of back and forths, and then we ended up at 1.625. And it wasn't, to go back to your question, um, I think we were psychologically prepared by the end of it. So the moment that the exit happened, which maybe that could be when we signed the pieces of paper or what some, someone could say, maybe when the money is in the bank, that was a month after the decision had been made to accept the offer and the due diligence had their due diligence had happened and so everything was okay to to close but the most difficult moment was or most intense moment was well, not difficult the most intense and emotional moment was the last board meeting when we had to vote whether we wanted to sell or not and when we all voted when the at the end we decided to sell I remember having one week where randomly every couple of hours I would start crying. <laughs> so I was at home doing my stuff, already starting to work on the idea of Delhi. And I would like start thinking about Depop, about one aspect or another. And I remember many times looking at my wife and starting to come into tears and say to my wife, Chiara, I don't know why I'm crying, but... And this would happen like every two or three hours for a week. It was really crazy. I think it's more or less like when you have a, a, a baby and then this, you grow this baby and this baby then becomes a, a teenager. They have their difficulties as a teenager. Maybe they start dating someone that you don't like or maybe they start taking drugs. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and then you start having doubts whether they're going to make it in life. And then at a certain point, they fi find a really good partner and you are there at the wedding in the first row and they say yes, and you're the parent classic crying. <laughs> I think that would be the analogy. <laughs> okay, so uh, Etsy is the, uh, the chosen partner yes. for the next <laughs> stage of your child's yes. life. Okay, so the day it happened, what was that like? What was it like knowing that you've built and sold a company for $1.6 billion, that your fortunes forever, both literally and metaphorically, will never be the same. What does that feel like? Well, that's a very good question. I, I think it's multifaceted answer. I would say when you build a startup, you build it for probably two reasons. One is you have a vision, you like building stuff, you want to see that vision fulfilled. And the second reason is money. Uh, one cannot hide that you do a company like that also because of money, because the stress of building a company like that is so intense that you need to aim for that, if none other, because you know that when this is going to be finished, you might want to not work for a while because 
you need to recoup some of the energy. I didn't end up not working for other reasons, uh, which we, we might touch upon. But I would say, first of all, I'm going to start money-wise. The idea that you... I, I grew up in a family which wasn't always going well economically. Uh, we had a, a lot of roller coasters in our lives where my parents were in and out of jobs. And we, for some periods in our in our lives, my brother and I didn't have a lot of money. I remember there was a time we, we used to live out of the city and we the only way to go to the to school was to my mum had to drive us to school and we were such in a difficult situation. Luckily it was just a few times, but we couldn't we couldn't do petrol to go to school, <laughs> which was weird to say today, but it was the case at the time. So and so the idea that now I don't need to worry about that. That is one of the most amazing feelings ever. I think, I think there is no day, there isn't any, there isn't a day that I wake up without thinking how lucky I am economically, that I can do anything I want or nearly any, anything I want. But all the things that I would like to do, I can do. Let's say that I'm, not, I don't plan into buying uh, hundred meter yachts or. Gun. I'm sure you buy all designer clothes now, though, right? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, this is the interesting question I just realised has popped up in my yeah. head. So you're Italian yeah. and English, so you have uh, a good natural understanding of, let's say, luxury fashion. That's very much part of both cultures. Yeah. But you built and sold a secondhand marketplace. So when you can buy anything in the world without actually thinking about it, what do you choose? It's a mix. Sometimes I buy uh, used stuff. For example, I recently bought a um, secondhand Ralph Lauren shirt from, I think, early 2000s. Really, really nice. Uh, sometimes I buy new stuff. I like to buy st stuff from uh, young brands, up-and-coming brands. Al although I, I did, I haven't bought it yet, but I did decide I want to buy something from like a, a very luxury brand. For example, there's this Italian brand called uh, Prada, which makes really nice men's suits, which I really like. Oh, there's this brand called Loro Piana. This is an incredible Italian brand. It's a small brand, smallish, but I think it. in my case, I didn't start spending money from one day to another. It, it's, it's a slow process. Even as of today, I... I, I, some, some things I have difficulty in buying because I'm still used to thinking when I didn't have money. So I think that's a good thing, by the way. My wife and I always talk about it and being frugal sometimes helps us to keep the feet, our feet on the ground. So most of my money is in a, a private bank. Uh, what we did splurge in is we bought ourselves a nice apartment in, in London and we don't save in restaurants. So when we go to a restaurant, we see a nice bottle of wine. I say to myself, Simon, go for it. It's your... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and just in terms of like the, I guess, transition, right? So you sell a company for a lot of money. You're then an employee again, but at a much bigger company. So how long did you have to spend at Etsy? You know, what are your reflections on post-exit? Was it challenging in a good way? Was it challenging in a bad way? I mean, growth is growth, but I'd love to know your personal take on what that was like for you to have gone from owner to not. Actually, in control actually not. I was not uh, asked to stay and work at Etsy. You got lucky. I got lucky. Uh, but the reason is is simple. Two and a half years before the exit, I had left the day-to-day -day job at Depop because Maria, the CEO at the time, had finished, more or less finished, to build the uh, senior leadership team at Depop. So my role at Depop when Maria became CEO was to sit next to her and help her on building community, the marketing, uh, some aspects of the product uh, and the brand. And I've done so for a few years uh, since she was CEO. But also one of the things that I was supposed to help her on was build a leadership team. And the goal was 
once the leadership team is built, they can run the company on a day-to-day business, um, on a day-to-day, and then I would decide whether I wanted to do something else at Depop, similarly to maybe what the founders of Google did when Eric Schmidt became CEO, uh, or leave. And so some of the things I could have done at Depop, maybe launch other kind of products or go and launch in a new country. I was asked whether I wanted to go and launch uh, in South Korea or Japan. But at the time, I thought that Depop was going through a phase where it needed to focus on building the playbook to launch in, in the US. It wasn't necessary to create new new kind of distractions at the time uh, for the company. So I thought maybe this is a, an opportunity for me to say, I'm going to take that break Maria can continue running the company. I'm going to be around uh, if she needs me. And so I left the day to day for a year. I was around and they called me very often. The year after that, a bit less often, although I did continue to travel the world for Depop uh, at events, doing interviews and these kind of things, panels. So that's why I did not take a break after Depop uh, before starting Delhi, because I sort of had a semi break. Uh, in those two and a half years. Although thinking about it afterwards, I maybe I should have taken like a full, complete, even mental break because those two and a half years, I did not fully work uh, at the company, but mentally I was still in it fully. Okay. So you, I guess, had the opportunity to live the founder dream, which is exit a company for a lot of money, have cash in your bank account, and not have to slave away working in a new culture, figuring out how to make sure that this thing doesn't collapse. And that in itself is like most founders' dreams, because most founders, you just said earlier, Mark Andreessen says, you know, founders are terrible employees, like they cannot do it. And yet, for most founders, one of the core goals is to sell your company to another company, which in itself will make you an employee again and give you a boss. Yeah. So there is this weird cycle where, you know, mostly this rebellious and radical group of people who think like, I'm actually too scatterbrained and too unfocused to ever be a good employee, but I'm a good general jack of all trades generalist who could be a CEO and manage a whole bunch of different things. Certainly from a startup point of view, getting it to a certain point will one day most likely have to fall in line. And uh, and that is one of the reasons I think why so many of those stories go so badly, because it's just not part of the character, right? There's that certain type of character that founders, entrepreneurs, and sometimes CEOs, but certainly founders and entrepreneurs have, and it just doesn't lend itself well to responding to authority from above one way or another. Yeah, true. That's absolutely true. I think that would be, I wouldn't call it a nightmare because when you exit, there is no nightmare. You, you've been successful. Yeah, 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 you've yeah. had a lot of, uh, you made a lot of money. Uh, champagne nightmare. Champagne nightmare. A golden, a golden cage yeah. in a sort of way. Um, yeah, a diamond disaster. <laughs> yes. But if we look at the... The statistics, a lot of times this happens, whether it's Steve Jobs at Apple, whether in his case, it wasn't an exit, but he was, he stepped down as CEO. So basically he became an employee of his CEO, Uh, whether it's Elon Musk uh, with PayPal, whether it's the founders of Instagram, uh, WhatsApp, the same, Uh, even Depop, Maria uh, did not do the full three years, no. So Maria did not found Depop with me, but I think in the course of the years that she worked with Depop, it was as if she became a sort of co-founder because she, the intensity and the the yeah, the 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 adventure that that is building a startup, even at those stages, it feels a bit like like that. So you sort of become that kind of person, and. Um, I think I was very, very lucky. You asked me a question earlier, which is how do I feel? I'd answer the money part. The second part was uh, I have to pinch myself every day also thinking about the fact that we built a company that exited for that amount of money. But also if you think of how many, how few companies have managed to do that. I was reading a statistic the other day, which I cannot forget anymore now, which is there's 
been something like 63, 64 uh, unicorns in the UK. Uh, out of those, only 17 ever exited. And of those 17, two only became unicorns, gained unicorn status at, at exit. And one of those two is Depop. So that's, um, yeah, that's really incredible. Sometimes I can't believe it. And some, that, that's the thing that makes me really, really happy, most happy of everything, uh, amongst everything, yeah. So I'm assuming when you were first uh, raising for Depop, it was hard, you know, like it is for all of us, you know, VCs turn you down, people turn you down, et cetera, et cetera. What's been your plan uh, for Delhi? So tell us a little bit about, I guess what I'm interested in here is two things. One, the transition period. Um, so I'm interested in what do you do when you leave a company and you now have so much money that you could do anything? Firstly, like why, like why even bother doing anything ever again? Like, how long did it take you to learn that you had to do something? Yeah, and secondly, like, actually, does having lots of money make it harder? Because as we often understand, having too much choice isn't actually too helpful. And money gives you... The one number one thing that guests say on the show is that the one thing that money gives you is choice. You choose whatever you want to do in the whole entire world, and sometimes that can, in its own weird way, be a cage. Yeah, I think... I often get asked what mistakes I did at Depop, which I didn't do at Delhi. I'd like to say, answer by saying there are always new mistakes that one can do. So maybe some mistakes I didn't do at Delhi, but others are new and I learned them during, during Delhi. And this is one. So I was very lucky to be able to raise uh, the money that, I need, that we needed. Uh, with Delhi, I have a co-founder, Marie, that... It also comes from Depop and she um, fundraised with me and we raised uh, more money than uh, many companies would raise if it was the first time, you no, know, at a seed investment. And we raised the money. How much did you raise? We raised um, seven and a half million, I think, seven million pounds. Seven, yeah. Seven million pounds seed? We, -seed. we raised one and a half million pounds uh, initially from HV Capital and then another six, six million um, between HV and Boulderton. I've always wanted to know this, Simon. Let me interrupt you. Why not just invest it all yourself? Like that must have been tempting. Yeah, so this is actually what I was alluding to. Raising a lot of money makes you a bit more complacent. You you think you know what you're doing because you've ha you've been successful and then you've got the money to do it. And what happens is that you start spending more money, hiring more people, building a bigger team. And what I've learned with Delhi is that this is counterproductive into building a startup at a very, very early stage when you're looking to find product market fit. Product market fit is achieved when you are four people, five people, around the desk working together full time with uh, little to no money, which gives you the, allows you to have that bias to action, which makes you want to find the solutions to all the problems as fast as possible because you don't have any money and, and so on and so forth. So that was a problem at Delhi. And if I could go back, n none Without taking away from our fantastic VCs, obviously, they are an incredible firm, uh, both of them, who are helping us out a lot and are definitely going to be useful in the successive stages. So having them on board as part of the family now is, is useful. But if I could go back, maybe I would invest my own money, build the prototype, find product market fit, and then go out fundraising. Yeah. Okay. Great answer. Thank you for sharing. I suppose the other thing as well is, I think no matter how wealthy you become, you will always still be conscious of spending money. So when it's all your own money, let's say that you were making decisions that were like, well, Simon needs to stick in another million quid now. You'd probably think twice and be like, well, hold on a second. Can we be scrappier about X, Y, and Z? I don't want to stick in another million quid just because we can't be bothered to think this thing through properly. And so that in itself, like, even if you were a billionaire yourself, I still believe that every million quid you'd need to put into the business, you'd still be like, wait a minute, this doesn't seem like a good business decision. Yeah. So you'd have more checks and balances in place. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The, 
the next company I'm going to do, if there's going to be a next one, uh, I'm going to put my own money in it to begin with. And I'm going to set myself some rules, which is that it's going to be only a few people in a room for six to 12 months building prototypes and testing it out before even thinking about building a company around it. So can you explain what Delhi is? Like, why did you want to start this business? And I guess, you know, coming back to the previous question, you know, this fascination that I have, which is like, you've made more money than you can do anything with in your life. You could choose to do anything. Why aren't you just flying around the world on private jets, staying in private islands, like just chilling for the rest of your life, doing talks, inspiring some people, telling them the stat, you know, that is going to elevate you in any room that you walk into. You could be doing that. So why aren't you? Good question. First of all, I like building companies. I like having ideas and thinking about building a product around those ideas and finding a market. It's um, basically building. I, I, I find my passion in doing that. I observe the world around me, ask myself a lot of questions, see whether some of the problems that I come up with are being solved or are being solved not in the best way and ask myself whether there is an opportunity to build something there. I like building teams in a world of remote working. I love going to the office every day and being together with the team and having the experience together with them. So that's one reason about traveling the world. I think I've made a mistake. I should have taken a year off. My wife and I have a dream, which is to travel the world for 12 months and do 15 days in in 24 different cities. So choose 24 cities, go 15 days in each city, discover the city and uh, do that for a year. And then the second thing I should have done is maybe build a family. We don't have kids yet, but I'm approaching my 50s now. So it's time for me to build a family. That would be the second thing I would maybe do. But uh, Delhi came uh, and I decided to jump on it. My wife, uh, thank, thank God she accepted. She is not <laughs> unhappy about it. Uh, she enjoys Delhi too, by the way. She likes the idea. She gives me a lot of advice. We talk about it a lot. And so uh, that's the reason why I decided to do it. But like, what do you mean Delhi came? As in, I, I'm listening to this as someone who's hearing this stuff for the first time too, right? So I'm trying to get in, inside the mind of my listeners. Again, you've got, you can do anything in the world, just work super hard for a long period of time. And you're one of the rare cases of like really fucking made it. <laughs> Not just like made it, you really fucking smashed it. And you and your wife have this dream of, doing this thing which for many years in your life seems like a dream and now it's not a dream how could something like delhi suddenly pop in and be like that's more interesting like not to challenge you but like literally tell us like how does that happen where did delhi suddenly come from um and distract you away from this like amazing sounding plan <laughs> so delhi was an idea that i had a year after i started depop actually i was uh in london and i saw all these corner shops which carried all these food products by the major big food uh, conglomerates and i knew at the time that obviously the the whole topic about eating more healthy and what sugar and processed food is doing to us was already starting to surface then netflix started publishing all these documentaries and this became quite a big thing and i as i said the observer that I am, I started noticing how this was going to become a thing. And then seeing Whole Foods in the US and Ear One, which is a big chain in California. And I thought maybe there is an opportunity to build an app where people can have the experience of buying in a, like if they were in a small deli, but in their pocket and buying food, which is better than the food that they can buy at Tesco's or at these corner shops. And so I envisioned an app in a similar way that I guess if we can have a loose comparison, when Monzo and Revolut came to be, they envisioned how it could be to have a mobile banking experience 
which by means of being mobile, it could be so much better than the web counterparts from the other banks, but also the features that they have more tailored for the younger generation. And so that was an idea I had in 2012, which I never did because of Depop. Then when I left Depop, uh, before the exit, I started thinking, what do I do next? The exit, the Depop exit wasn't yet in the radar. And so uh, I started thinking about Delhi. And at a certain point, I think this was just when Depop was beginning the exit process. I asked the board whether I could do Delhi. Uh, they would give me permission. They said yes. And Lars from HV Capital, he said, I really love the idea. I... If you do it, I would love to invest in it. And so I said, okay, let me start it. And Lars invested. And then uh, when the exit came to be, I asked myself, I did not spend much money on Delhi at the time. So I could have said, I'm going to give the money back to the investors, the one that I spent, plus the one that's back in, uh, still in the bank. And I'm going to do what I said with my wife. And so I sat down with my wife, we had a conversation and we decided that we could postpone our trip since Delhi had started already and continue Delhi anyways. Very stressful. I'm probably, I would have not done that, but at the same time, I'm super happy that I've done it anyways, because Delhi is another adventure that I'd like to see uh, the end of. So... A typical startup journey. I say this to every entrepreneur that I mentor or speak to. Expect a minimum of 10 years. Stop messing around with thinking about the first two years. The good ones go for 10 years. So bearing in mind that you built Depop in your 40s, you'll be building Delhi in your 50s. The question is, what have you learned from your first experience about um, how you want to run the business culturally, for yourself, time management, big teams, small teams, like what are the lessons? What are the things you're changing this time round? And bear in mind, you're going to be a 60 year old when I talk to you about this exit. <laughs> so let's hope I can do this in seven years instead of 10. <laughs> maybe right, maybe yeah. my experience. I'll speak to you at 57 then. We'll have a chat. Yes. Let's do another podcast at 37. Yeah. A uh, 57. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. First of all, I decided to have on board someone with me on my side so we could share the successes and pains, but also because I thought at Depop, I did not have a, an operational kind of person next to me, someone who is more pragmatic, who can understand how to build a business and sit next to me building the strategy and the roadmap. So I've asked Marie to join me from Depop. She had left Depop. Uh, Marie at Depop, she ran all the international markets and at the end she also ran the UK. So she expanded Depop into many countries. And so that's the first thing I decided to do, to have her uh, next to me. The, the other things I decided to do are many, many small things here and there. But I think, as I said earlier, many of the things that, went, that we did at Delhi were different than um, we did at Depop. So for example, we started Delhi thinking that we would build a marketplace, but then uh, food being food, we learned that at Delhi, it is better if we build um, a logistical operational side where we handle the, the food. So Delhi is becoming more of a warehouse operations, but yeah. Uh, I would say that would be the number one thing. The second main thing, I've actually the big second big thing I've decided to do is to take care of myself a little bit more, body and, and, and mentally. So I've started doing, well, it began with Balderton offering me to join a wellness program that they mm -hmm. launched. I've seen it. Yeah, they just yeah, launched that. It. Yeah. So... That wellness program included a gym. So I have a PT uh, that is sending me exercises on an app that I do every day. Then there's a performance coach and a health coach. And those three figures have been very instrumental for me in the past, let's say, six months since the beginning of this year, maybe uh, eight months. And that has completely changed the way I handle and manage the 
my day-to-day life because going to the gym every morning, taking care of myself, eating more healthy, not drinking alcohol during the week, uh, having a coach to talk to, all those things are really, really important to the point that after doing them, I do recommend any startup to do it. It's it's fundamental, yeah. And what was your general work-life balance, like attitude, like, you know, I often say there is no work-life balance, there's just life. So try and enjoy the work that you do. Yeah. But are you a clock off at six kind of guy? Are you, and actually, you know, leading question, of course, but I would say on a personal level, you know, I get asked a lot, well, what's changed since you became a dad? I've got a two-year-old. And so this might be future advice for you. Yeah. What's changed is like with all things in life, you basically try to figure out your priorities. And when you have a child, Maybe, ideally, hopefully, yeah. you say, all right, my, pro- my, ch- my child is now my priority, not my business. Yeah. So something shifts. Never had that before. My business was always my priority yeah. over my relationships. So business number one. Yeah. And the problem with that uh, is two things. One, you don't create your own boundaries. So you're not like, oh, I need to stop working at some point. I found personally, if I had energy and I wanted to do something um, I wanted to go and solve a problem. So instead of watching Netflix, I'll go work on my business. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what time of day it is or what day of the week it is. I don't create those own boundaries for myself. And two is Parkinson's law, which is actually when you have enough time and you know that maybe there's seven days, 24-7, like you don't really have your own boundaries. Yeah. Stuff will just fill that time. So in a way, you're you're not more effective. You're actually less productive. You're just spreading it out yeah. a lot more, I found. Yeah. Now, the difference is having a two-year-old, I do every single bedtime and bath time possible. There are rare exceptions, but generally speaking, I do them all. I finish work, 6.15, I do bath time. And it creates a hard stop. And I haven't found myself to be less effective. I've actually found myself to be more effective or as effective in a shorter period of time. Yeah. And that's been a really interesting lesson for me. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, if... You've created any new rules starting Delhi from where it was, Depot. The pressures are different for you now. And also if that resonated. Yeah, it does resonate, actually. I think when you start exercising some discipline uh, on your time, you end up being able to do the same amount of things in less amount of time. Uh, One could argue that uh, if we were Elon Musk, then the extra time that we have, we would do the same and multiply that. Mm. But uh, I bought his book the other day. I still have to start reading it, but I'm really curious to, to, to know a bit more about how he can do that. Having mm. said so, for more normal kind of people, maybe like us, I think that I don't have a kid and I ask myself every day, how will it be when I have a kid? But what I do is, as opposed to Depop, I do provide myself with some hard stops when, whenever possible. Uh, for example, it's rarely the case that I work after 8 p.m. in the evenings. Maybe I do some emails. I do, I do Slack here and there, but work in front of the computer, I don't do that a lot. Since I started doing gym, I, I, I go to the gym at 7 a.m. every morning, finish at 8. That hour before that, I used to use it for either emails or reading the news and informing myself of what goes on in the world. Have I lost some productivity there? Maybe with some emails. Definitely I've lost some time for learning or getting informed what's going on in the world. So yeah, it's it's a tricky one. I don't know. Uh, work-life balance is a, as you said, is a very tricky word. I would say when people are too strict with that, I wouldn't. I would. I would say maybe that's an indication. Could it could even be an indication that maybe they're not enjoying their their work so much. There are some people that, you know, maybe at six p.m. they switch off everything and they do not reply to messages for work and stuff. I would say it is. It's not going to kill you if you keep Slack open and you you see if there's any urgent message. No, uh, it's not going to kill you if you check your emails at 8 a.m. when you wake up and you, you're, have, you're having your coffee. So work-life balance for me is, a, is not, yeah, it's not a thing. Maybe what's important is that you, you observe yourself and see whether you are, you need a rest. Rest maybe is the best, is the best term. You, you go by the day, when you feel tired, 
you stop. If you have kids, maybe obviously you want to take time for your kids. Marie has kids. She goes home at a specific time every day. But then when she took care of her kids, maybe she jumps back on Slack. I guess what I'd love to know, uh, coming to the end of the interview, um, and, and thank you, that has been so insightful uh, and, and so, so many good things shared. But obviously, you've done a few different businesses. And throughout each business, you'll get different kinds of feedback, giving you opportunities to learn how to improve as a leader, how to improve as a colleague, how to improve as an employee. And so those feedback loops presumably been pretty helpful for your personal growth. Question is, what is some of the most helpful feedback that you've had at Depop? Maybe stuff that actually identified your blind spots, things that you weren't even aware of that were causing issues, the things that, you know, we're all here to talk about how amazing we are, but I'd love to know what some of the things that you found out in your life you weren't so amazing at and how you've used that reflection to be a better leader at Delhi. When we start doing anything, I think it's called the Dunner-Kruger effect. It's that kind mm-hmm. of cognitive bias where you start something and you don't know, your, your confidence is high. I can't remember exactly, but... Yeah, the less, the less you actually know about something, the more confident you are that you're a genius about it. And the more you know yeah. about something, the less confident you are that you know much about yeah, it Yeah, exactly. All. And then you get to a yeah. point where you have a lot of knowledge, but less confidence because mm. you have discovered that how much stuff you didn't know. And so your confidence goes a little bit down. And so uh, I started Depop with a lot of confidence. Then as I started learning all of the things that you learn building startups, your confidence goes a little bit lower. But then that's when you start learning and you want to learn even more. So at that point, uh, I think the number one thing that made that improved me as a entrepreneur, as a manager, maybe as a leader in some cases, is uh, reading the books. There are many books out there now. We've mentioned a couple uh, that share information and knowledge on how to build startups, uh, how to build companies, how to manage teams. There are many biographies now out there that are very useful. I think those were the number one things that taught me how to build companies. Having VCs on board is helpful because many of them have been entrepreneurs themselves. Those who haven't uh, still have uh, experience being on the board of many companies so they, they can see patterns and help you out. But I would say reading books is the number one thing that helps you build companies, I would say. Yeah. Got it. Okay, so over the next decade... Um, you're going to build hopefully another unicorn and be in an even rarer uh, situation of having two companies exited over a billion euros, pounds, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) I feel pretty confident just listening to you and your passion that you can get there. What do you think is the number one thing that's going to stop that from happening? What do you foresee as like your biggest obstacle? Oh, that's that's a perfect last question. The number one thing that's going to stop it is if I lose the will to do it. I think... Right, like having having money and motivation, right? Yes. Like it's very different this time around. Yeah. Steve Jobs said, no, uh, 50% of the success is perseverance. I would say the same because at Depop, there was so many times when you wa- you I wanted to give up. There was actually one time where I actually literally gave up and I had to take a break. Luckily, the board supported me in that phase. But I would say, yes, that's actually even the number one, one of the, one of the top advices I give to my friends is continue, 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 close your eyes and continue. It's like you're going around the track or you are walking into a mountain and you have an objective, reach that point and you are tired, continue, never stop. And probably the, the fact that as an entrepreneur, one is unemployable, maybe doesn't have any more, any money that is what makes them successful because those are motivations to make them want to continue. So that would be the first thing that I would say could make the company not work. My loss of motivation, given that I have been successful, maybe. I I hope that's not going to happen. It's not happened yet. And I hope that's not going to (laughs) happen. Got it. Okay. And final question, what's the best piece of advice you have for listeners who are going to go on a long and winding journey of entrepreneurship, building teams, building product, reaching consumers, 
and hopefully exiting for over a billion quid? Uh, be curious. Always ask yourself questions. Challenge yourself. Learn as much as you can. I, I mentioned books. Watch, interv- listen to interviews, maybe like this one. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, podcasts, so on and so forth. Become a learning machine, a sponge. That would be the number one. Amazing. Can you say, can you say become a sponge in Italian for us so we can make it sound even sexier? Um, in Italian, sponge is spugna. So you say, diventa una spugna. That sounds like the perfect, (laughs) perfect soundbite. It's really like above people's bedroom every single day, their motivation. We can make posters of that. Amazing. Simon, thank you so much for your time on Secret Leaders. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode and found it useful, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. It makes a real difference. And we genuinely love reading what you think. We read every single review. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and we'll be back next week with more lessons for entrepreneurs and leaders. This episode was produced by Alex Graham, Ruth Edwards, and all brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolomon. See you next time.